Grant us wisdom, grant us courage. We said that, sang that four times in the uh, hymn that we just sang in there, that refrain. And I pray that that's something God works by his word in and through your heart this morning. We know the words to protect and defend. We are every new session of Congress begins with all the newly elected uh, senators and all the House of the Representatives taking an oath to support and defend, you know what? The U.S. Constitution. That's their oath. And they're saying we will use our position, we will not exceed our authority, and we will use our position for the good of society. To protect and defend, we would say, is a function of our military. To protect and defend our country from threats from outside or threats from within. And we would say our police force and uh, public servants would protect and defend society. They're people who we've authorized to use force and carry weapons to protect us and to take care of us and to make sure that there's no outside evil that will come to uh, overtake us. God gives us protection. God gives us defense. And the question is how? And as, as pretty much with everything, God uses means to, to get this done. He uses military. He uses police force. He uses people to accomplish that protection. But he also, on a personal level, you have protection. You, the largest organ of your body is your skin, right? It protects you from things that would bring you harm. Your lymph system, your internal uh, immunity system protects you from germs and from uh, diseases that are part of the world, broken world that we live in. And God has put protection right in our bodies. But how does God protect us? And we would say, the Bible is clear. He protects us. He watches your coming and going both now and forevermore. But what does he protect us from? Christians have car crashes just as much as an unbeliever does or an atheist does. We all die at the same rate, and last time I checked, it's still 100%. Our deaths are not particularly less painful or easier than the deaths of somebody else. How does God protect us? What do you mean? when you say, God defends me and God protects me. Spiritually, he promises you that he does protect you. In fact, the Bible does talk about a angel watching over you. Not many angels, but an angel watching over you, protecting you from spiritual dangers. And the Bible does talk a lot about that personal agent of evil, the devil, who is out to destroy and to pull down uh, people and to have them have salvation be taken away from them. How does God protect me? I should be able to point to something, shouldn't I, as a Christian? It takes faith. It takes faith to understand God protects us. And in this, uh, um, and we're going to talk about the issue of faith and how a person who's in relationship has, has the protection of God and the courage that it takes to face the dangers that every single day can bring. We live in a relationship with God. Many of you, if you had children, played the same game I played with my children. I don't know who invented the game, but if we were at a pool, what would happen? 
And when they were little and couldn't swim, they would stand on the deck of the pool, and I'd stand, I don't know, three feet away from them, and I'd say, jump, right? And uh, when they got unafraid of the water, they would jump. Even though they knew, they, maybe they didn't know, but I knew that if I didn't catch them, they could very well drown, right? But they jumped, and they didn't worry about things. They trusted that I would catch them or that their mom would catch them or that their loved one would catch them. There was a trust that said, I can, I can jump, and I don't have to worry about being caught or I don't have to worry about being afraid. I just can think about how much fun I'm having and the thrill of uh, the excitement of uh, jump launching through the air, and I can think about how far I can go. And I can just have to say, Daddy, catch me. And it's a great game. That little episode can help us understand what's going on in these texts. In the first one from uh, Genesis that Bob read, God promises never to flood the earth again. Never again would uh, water destroy the earth. That's not how he's going to take care of things. That's not how he's going to take care of sin. And he puts the rainbow, the bow as it's called. There's no word for rainbow in Hebrew, but just he puts a bow in the sky. And that visible reminder that, ah, God's a God of promise. That's not how he's going to fix the problems and the problem of sin. And then we read that Jesus walking on the water and the disciples are terrified. They think he's a ghost. And Mark leaves out a kind of a part of the story that we know from other, from Matthew. Somebody else was called out to walk on the water. Remember him, Peter? And he knew he couldn't do it alone, but if Jesus asked him, if Jesus called him to do it, he knew what he could do and trusted God to do what only God could do. And he did walk on the water. And Mark tells us that Jesus got in the boat with him. The disciples are astounded, and they go on to the other side of the lake of the Sea of Galilee, and they encounter these uh, foreign people, these Gadarenes, and then next week we're going to hear a little bit more on that same story. And I hope you again, we're, I hope you see these things are all brought together. We, we read them as chunks, but they're really one, it's really one day in the life of Jesus here, what we've been reading. And today I want to just think with you, why did Jesus walk on water? What was going on there? Was he just taking a shortcut to get to the other side faster? Did he want to show off some super stunt to his disciples just to say, hey, look at this, look at this, I'm walking on water, right? Probably one of the best well-known things uh, in the Bible or most referenced things of the Bible. But actually, there's a lot more going on. And I'd like you to open your Bible with me. Turn to Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through uh, uh, 50, and you can read that a little bit from there, and you can uh, let your eyes look at a few things that we're going to drill down a little bit. And just like uh, a seven-layer salad, you know, that has all these different layers of things that turn out to be something good, Mark records some interesting layers of what's all going on in, in uh, this event, in this narrative in Mark chapter 6. And you can see it all happening. And I tried to bring some of those pieces together. Um, and it begins on page 1563. 
So whatever happened uh, with the feeding of the 5,000, whether people recognized it or the disciples apparently didn't get it, Mark records that, but the people did. And they were wanting more food. They liked this Jesus vending machine idea. And they wanted to make him now king of the, of the land. And Jesus sends them away. And he, you can see immediately right after he fed the 5,000 and they gathered it up, Jesus made his disciples get in the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida, some little village. You know, he dismissed the crowds. And he's on the mountain praying. And the disciples are out on the boat it says in the middle of the sea now when evening came the boat was in the middle of the really should be sea and he was alone on the land and he saw the disciples that's one of the tips right there nighttime not exactly best time to view things he's on a mountain they're in the middle of the sea. How far out? Two, three miles maybe? I don't know. The Sea of Galilee is not a small lake, small sea. But Jesus is seeing the impossible. And Mark is building in all of these things to say something extraordinary is going on here. Something God-like is going on here. And then in verse 44, we read, uh, 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 well, in, in verse 48, we, we read a little bit. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. The, he's, Jesus up on the mountain. They're in the middle of the sea. They're straining at the oars. This is painful toil. This is not just my muscles are tired. This is laborious, hard pulling on the oars, not making it anywhere. The word is tormented. They're tormented. And right there, that should bring a little bit of a, a reminder to those who have been reading this gospel that Jesus came in to encounter some others who were tormented. These were the men who were tormented by Satan. That's the same word that's being used here. They were up against a force that they had no control over. And uh, they were the, not in danger, but uh, it's the same word. And the word that they said to Jesus, did you come to torment us? And another word, they're making headway because the wind was against them. Their oars are in the water, but they're not getting anywhere. And it's, uh, it's the same thing as the demon driven into the desert. And for the Israelites, the sea was always a place of danger, a place of chaos, of, of disorder and confusion, opposite the peace and tranquility that God would have on land. And the description of the demonic possession and the description of the disciples at the sea is the same description. And Mark is setting the table for us to say, pay attention here. Pay attention, disciples to his readers who were reading it in a confused Roman world and said, we don't get our society. Things are going crazy. Mark is saying, pay attention. And to disciples today, Marcus, God is using this to say, pay attention to the same things that happened long ago. Same promises are being fulfilled for you. And Jesus brought calm and peace. And then let's continue in verse 48. Uh, about the fourth watch of the night. Does anybody know what time that is? 
That's from 3 to 6 a.m. So let's just call it 4.30 a.m. All right? I don't know what you were doing. I was sleeping at that time, today. Wish it would have been a little longer, but uh, <laughs> we got up. But Mark is telling you, this is not that. This is not normal stuff here. About the fourth watch of the night, and th and then you got to remember, oh, what else happened during this time of the day in the Bible? Are there any other events where something similar happened, where it's very early in the morning? And the sea was against them. And we had God on a mountain. And there was a wind blowing. Anything that that reminds you of? Exodus chapter 14, parting of the Red Sea. See, all of this is designed to jog people, to believers' memories. And, uh, but it's, it, we continue. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them. Walking on the lake, he was about to pass them by, but when he saw him, when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they were, they saw him and were terrified. And that word, pass them by, packs a big punch, because it's another. It's jogging the the people's minds of some things in the Old Testament that happened. He meant to pass them by, kind of not like, eh, I'm gonna, I gotta get. I'm, I'm racing you to the other side. Kind of like you go through a red light, you know, you just, it's yellow, but you want to pass it by. This is exactly a, a term that Mark is using uh, to say this is God going to be at work. We see the, all the things of uh, the episode of rem reminiscent of the Exodus. But right after the Exodus, in Exodus chapter 32, there's a famous what's called a theophany. That's a God sighting where Moses wants to see the glory of God. And in that, and God says, nobody can see me and live. But Moses, I'm going to let you see a portion of me. And he says, there's a rock here with a valley in it. I'm going to put you in that rock that's cleft for you. And I'm going to put my hand over it. And I'll walk by. And after I walk by, you can see the glory of the Lord. It's where the hymn, the old spiritual hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. That's where that comes from. It's written in, in Exodus ch chapter 32. We talk about having a God sighting. We see where God worked. We see things that God has done. This is an actual sighting of God that Moses is talking about. And you can read it in Exodus chapter 33 and 34. And uh, I'll put that on the screen, just some of the things that are, uh, yeah, going on. And you can see there's these words, when my glory passes by, and four times in these in this episode, it uses the word when my glory passes by. So in verse 32, it says, when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then verse 34, or chapter 34, tells us what happened uh, and exactly what happened. And then in verse 6 of chapter 34, it says, the Lord passed by, passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And then it goes on to describe the nature of God. 
Again, Mark is just telling us God's not just out for a stroll. Jesus is not just pitter-pattering along, taking a hike. He's showing he is God, visiting earth, coming to earth, joining himself to people. The Lord, the God who brought manna in the desert is now with his disciples uh, again. And again, this, uh, there's another occurrence of this word that I thought was interesting in Job chapter 9. Job, one of the most uh, ancient passages of Scripture, it, and he talks about how God is active in creation. You can see it. He's the God who made the sun. He's the God who makes the stars. He talks about the constellations of the bear. That's the north star, right? And Orion, uh, constellations in the sky. And then at the end, chapter 9 verse 11 says behold he passes by me and I see him not he moves on but I do not perceive him this is God coming to his disciples that's what this is about that's what Mark is telling in recording this story that's what Matthew is writing about. That's what John will talk about next week, and we're going to hear a little follow-up on that in the weeks to come. And this God who joins himself uh, comes and steps into the, gets into the boat, and he says, take heart at his eye. Courage, one word, really. I am is the other word. And again, it's another layer to the salad or the cake to say, What's going on here? I am is a great word for God, the name of God, Yahweh. I am, I am who I am. It's the Hebrew word for the name of God. And Jesus is saying his divine identity, I am the Lord God of Israel. I'm the one who passed by Moses in the cleft of the rock. I'm the one Job referenced. And Jesus is now showing he's the one who tramples on the sea. He's the one who crosses the sea, who brings calm to the chaos, who brings peace to the perturbed. I'm none other than Yahweh in the flesh, and I am with you. But the disciples still didn't quite get it, did they? Mark writes that little thing in there. They still didn't quite understand. And there's a great calm, and they're just in the boat, perplexed. And more to be revealed. And from the Bible's point of view, nobody really gets it in the, in the Bible until the resurrection and Pentecost, except the demons. They always kind of get right away who Jesus was, that he was God in, in flesh. But in light of everything he's now revealing to the church today, what does that mean for you and me? What about for you? And what about for me? I like kind of interesting what happened after this. We don't know. All of a sudden, next thing we read from the Bible, they're on the other shore. They're in this foreign land, the Gadarenes, the Gennesaret, where Jesus had been before. But did he automatically take them there, or did they have to keep rowing and talk about, well, what just happened? We don't know. But what does it mean to live by faith today? I hope you can pull some strings together, and I hope your mind is uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit. But a couple things that I wrote down about following Jesus and living by faith today, 
It reminded me of Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to all of this if God is for us? Who can be against us? Can you take courage in your life? Can you be bold in faith? I didn't say goofy or ridiculous, but to live what God says to do, that's the freedom we have. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, when the chaos makes you useless, you can live by faith. You can take courage. When the chaos makes you useless, and when we're in the wilderness of our own help, helplessness, God whispers to your heart through his powerful word. He sets the table and prepares a banquet. He serves up to you the bread of life, and, and he pours out his living water, and he shelters you in the shadow of the cross. Jesus is a helper to the helpless. The finder of the lost. He meets you where you are and you have nowhere to turn. Jesus is the forgiver of the fallen and he redeems the past of those who, uh, and sets them on a new life. We all have gifts and we all have abilities and we can face a lot. But there are some things we can't face. No matter how much self-help talk you read, there's some things you don't control. There's some things that happen that you'll never be able to get your way out of. Jesus says, when that chaos hits you, take courage. I'm with you. I truly am. Maybe it's the chaos of every day. Maybe, it's, uh, maybe you're losing strength. You're facing the, the chaotic times of, of, of your life and you don't know how to handle it and you're tempted to follow your own way or deal into uh, some unhealthy behaviors. God says, be still and know that I am God. Psalm 46. He is our refuge. He's our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. He'll give you the refreshment of the water of baptism so you can rely not on your stamina alone, but on the promises of God. And he shows you the bigger picture of what this is all about because he's the God who joins you in your boat and his steadfast love. When chaos makes you feel useless or helpless, take courage. The Lord is with you. When the struggle won't stop, Take courage. The Lord is with you. Chronic pain. Have you ever heard that? Doesn't go away. Chronic pain, as in chronic back pain. Chronic psychological pain. Uh, a thought that won't go away, that you don't, can't get rid of, that stays with you. Paul called it a thorn in his flesh, whatever that was. It was something that was tormenting him, he said. And for whatever reason, you've prayed and prayed and wished that God would miraculously take it away, and he doesn't. There's things that, from which God does not protect us. Death is the most obvious one. But that doesn't mean he lets us alone. 
His promises, he's with you. He promises he knows where you are. He, he traveled the road of sorrows that leads to more sorrows. And that's why the book of Hebrews tells us, for we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. He's been in your shoes. He knows you. He's fully human. He's fully God. He's the God who of compassion, who has uh, the the presence of the, of the Almighty. And Jesus is your compassion, and he won't let your ship languish in the open seas with uncertainty. He'll bring you to a safe haven. That's his promise. That's his promise to you. Hold on to that. Even when you're in the midst of it, and you're rowing, and you're not getting anywhere, and it's hard, it's torturous, there's times like that. Let's, let's be real. Jesus says, I am with you. He's been there. Next week we're going to see Jesus and talk about this from John, as he writes it in John chapter 6. And he's going to talk about the bread of life. And as he talked about that bread of life, there were some people who heard him, some people who probably ate that bread of the 5, 000, feeding the 5,000. And they rejected Jesus and they left him and Jesus said to his disciples do you want to go too? do you want to leave me now too and Peter says Lord to whom will we go you have the words of eternal life Peter who didn't understand it all yet he was still learning he was a work in progress just like you and me he said where would I go you have the words of eternal life where else would I find hope? Who else is going to protect and defend me? And so when the chaos is real and the struggle is ongoing or when you're called to face another day, you're called to wake up and do it again tomorrow. Go to work. And they pay you to go to work for a reason because it's not easy, right? If it was easy, they wouldn't have to pay you. But there's a struggle. And you say, well, will I do what's right? Or will I take a shortcut? Will I seek the best or dial it back? And God calls you to say, follow me. Will I act in love? Or will I take the easier way? And Jesus says, follow me. I'll bless it. I can't, I'm not going to tell you how, but I'll bless it along the way. We're going to sing a hymn during communion that has a phrase, this veil of tears. It's a hymn called, Be Still My Soul. It's actually to the tune of the national anthem of Finland. It tells of Jesus who will bring us through our struggles even when the, they won't go away. We'll sing it. Be still, my soul, though dearest friends depart, and all is darkened in this veil of tears. Then you will better know his love, his heart, who comes to soothe your sorrows and your fears. Be still, my soul. Your Jesus can repay from his own fullness all he takes away. Jesus protects and defends. He is the God who joins your life 
giving you forgiveness that sin is paid for. That's a promise so that you can live with courage and boldness and by faith. The Lord keeps you from all harm and he watches over your life, says Psalm 121. The Lord keeps watch over you as you come and go, both now and forevermore. Amen.